Fear is a strange thing, isn't it? Uh, I've never quite understood people wanting to be scared. Uh, this time of the year, there's always a lot of horror films, aren't there? You know, the, the ones that seem like they advertise themselves to be more scary than any of the other ones. And uh, I've never quite understood horror films, why people want to go uh, see them, really. I've never quite got that whole enjoying being scared. It's sort of the same with roller coasters, but I can understand that a little bit more. But the people seem to really like roller coasters that terrify them. And I've never really understood that. And maybe it's just me, but I think uh, fear is a strange thing. But most of us don't get a choice about feeling scared. In fact, a lot of us spend a big chunk of our Christian life being scared, don't we? We know that we shouldn't do, the Bible tells us not to fear, but we do. We fear for our salvation. We fear for our acceptance by God. We fear how sinful we are and how we could ever be one of God's people. And then there are fears of other kinds, aren't there, in the Christian life? Fear of persecution. Fear of rejection by friends and family. Fear of losing things that we hold dear because of the gospel. Perhaps you share some of those fears this morning. Well, the Hebrews uh, that the author is writing to, they did. They shared uh, those fears. They've been brave in the face of persecution, but now they're being tempted to shrink back. Not into nothingness, but into the sort of legal-based system that was the Judaism of their day. Instead of trusting in Jesus, they were being lulled into trusting the law of Moses. Instead of faith in Christ, it was becoming faith in their own keeping of the law. A return to a system where they wouldn't be persecuted so badly. A return to a system that the world at least understood. The world thinks that things work that way. And all the way through the letter, God has been calling them back to Christ. Christ alone for their rescue. And now we've reached what many think is the peak of the letter. Their old existence is put starkly before them and is contrasted with what they have now in Christ. The author could not be stronger in his renunciation of their old life. And it's a reminder to us this morning of the fearful existence that we've left behind. The fearful system, though, that we're in danger of falling into, that tells us that we need to justify ourselves, that we need to make our own standing before God right. It's a reminder this morning to us of the amazing truth of what we have in Christ. In fact, even in the church itself. So the first thing that he shows us in this passage is the terrors of Sinai, the terrors of Sinai. Let me read to you again verses 18 to 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. He tells them straight to start with, doesn't he? You've not come to Mount Sinai. That's what he's alluding to, though he never actually mentions the name. The place where the Ten Commandments were given. This mountain was not by faith. If you remember, the big theme of this section has been by faith. It was a real physical mountain. A mountain that could be touched In fact, you can still go there today. It's still there. You can go see uh, Mount Sinai. You can go visit it. 
He's saying it is something that can be touched, but you've not come there. And he gives us seven characteristics. He gives us seven characteristics for Sinai, and he gives us seven characteristics for Zion. Seven characteristics of this mountain that they haven't come to, the one that they've left behind. The first thing is that it can't be touched. It's tangible. It belongs to this creation, if you like. It's not by faith. The second is that it's a blazing fire. Mount Sinai burned with fire when God descended on it when he gave the law. Darkness is the next one. If you think about it, it's a bit of a bizarre description if you think that it's bursting with light, with fire. But it's described as darkness at the same time. That sort of fear factor of, of the dark. If that weren't enough, fourthly, he says that there's gloom there. That sort of awful, heavy feeling of, of fear. And it's not just that the author is having a bit of a, a go at Sinai, it's not he's having a bit of a downer. Actually, the Old Testament, the law itself, describes it in this way. So Deuteronomy 4.11, you've got on the back of your notice sheets. This is Moses explaining what happened. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. So it's not just that this guy has got a negative view of what's going on, uh, of Sinai and the giving of the law, it's actually the law's view of itself. That's what it's telling you about itself. Um, There's also, fifthly, a tempest. The cloud referred to in that verse is not some sort of cuddly marshmallow cloud. I don't know know how you ever view it. It's just something sort of gently landing on top of the mountain. Actually, it's a great storm. We're told elsewhere that there were flashes of lightning and peals of thunder in the cloud. So this is like a raging tempest going around the top of Mount Sinai. It sounds like a horror film, doesn't it? You know, the, the sort of dark nights with the storm coming. Sixthly, there's the sound of a trumpet. That's often used in the announcement of war. But the idea really originally with a trumpet, with the announcement of war, was to terrify the other side. Don't think sort of nice bugle calls, or something like that. Think bagpipes played off key. That's really what bagpipes are there for. It's there to terrify the other side. These awful, unearthly sounds, if you like. Think the, the awful noises that hurt your ears. Trumpets were played to strike terror into the other side. So there's the sound of a trumpet playing at the same time. And on top of all that, seventhly, there's a terrifying voice. So terrifying that they beg not to hear it anymore. Again, Deuteronomy 5, 25 and 26, it's on the back of your notice sheets. This is what the Israelites were saying at the time. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of a living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? So they hear the voice of God, but it's not a pleasant experience to them. They're scared that they're going to die. They think that God is going to consume them like a fire. They beg Moses to intercede for them because they're terrified to go themselves. But as we read in this passage, Moses is terrified as well. That incident, interestingly, is after the law is given, after they break the Ten Commandments with the golden calf. But even Moses is fearful of an angry God 
who's angry at the people's sin. It's all sort of clumped together with Sinai. That's Mount Sinai that they've not come to. But this is what they're tempted back into. This is what they wanted to go back to. This is what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians the ministry of condemnation. It's the old way. No access to God. Just a list of rules and laws that in themselves could only condemn. They didn't have the power to make the people obey them, so you ended up with these awful incidents like the golden calf. Under the old covenant, the law became a sort of charge sheet, a sort of listing off of God's charges against his people. You know, have no gods before me, guilty. Make no graven image, guilty. You get the point, I'm not going to go through all ten. Not that no one was saved under the old covenant, but that they were saved not by rules, but by the righteousness that comes by faith. That's what the whole of chapter 11 was about in Hebrews, wasn't it? That's evidence enough that people were saved under the old covenant, but they were saved by faith, never by works of the law. So Sinai symbolises the old way for them. A system that, when rightly understood, could never justify, it could only terrify. A system that said perform or perish, but could never provide the power in itself to perform. But before we get too harsh on the Hebrews who are being tempted back into this, aren't we tempted back into this sort of system ourselves? Something that's touchable and tangible. Something that's legal and performance-based. Doesn't that actually sound what we quite quickly uh, fall back into? Actually, in our lives, if we look at ourselves, we so often long for things that aren't by faith. We long for things that we can touch. Something that we can see, so it doesn't feel so unreal to us. And we're tempted to go into things that give us that sort of experience. We're also tempted to fall back into the performance game, aren't we? We judge our Christian life by how we're doing at rules. And we judge others on the basis of those same rules. We're proud when we meet them, and we condemn ourselves when we don't. As though we were still under the old covenant. We forget about faith, and we focus on our works, but actually it's by faith. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. Why would you want to return to Sinai? Why would you want to be under the ministry of condemnation? Why put the yoke back on yourselves that Jesus removed? Yes, it matters how you live. But it can't justify you, it can't make you righteous before God. It can't affect how loved you are by God. You are as loved as you ever could be, as cherished as you could ever imagine. You're not a slave of Sinai, you're an inhabitant of Zion, which is where he goes next. Secondly, the glories of Zion. Have a look with me with verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, just like Mount Sinai, 
we're told seven things about Mount Zion as well. The first thing we're told is that it's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion in the Old Testament was a mountain in Jerusalem. That's where we get all this uh, from. Actually, it's sunny mountain. It makes it very different to the mountain of gloom, isn't it, before. But it became so much more. It became a sort of idealised way of talking about Jerusalem. A sort of glorified Jerusalem. The city of the living God. The city of which glorious things are spoken. You sing that in that song, but it's actually a quote from Psalm 87. It's the place as well in the Bible that the exiles are to return to. So when they're longing to go home, they long to go to Zion. So Isaiah 51 verse 11, I think that's on the back of your notice sheets. It says this. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What a wonderful picture of them returning home. And that's what Zion became to the people. It became in the Old Testament a sort of future hope for Jerusalem. A Jerusalem made glorious. The city of the great king. The city of the glorious temple. Even as actual Jerusalem lay in ruins, the people sang a glorious Zion. And that's why here it's called the heavenly Jerusalem. All that Jerusalem was supposed to be as a city of the people of God is here as the city of the living God. Not the new Jerusalem, notice, but the heavenly Jerusalem. It's a present reality. It really is there now in heaven, the city of the saints. When Christ returns, it will descend and become the new Jerusalem. But for now, it's kept safe in heaven until the current Jerusalem passes away. And it's a heavenly reality now that we understand by faith. It's something that sort of belongs to the future, belongs to the end, but it's real now. And the amazing thing about this Jerusalem is not the walls or the temple or the architecture, it's the people. That's what he focuses on here. All the other things were told about this city by the last one are all about who's there. Not the walls and all the other impressive things. The heavenly Jerusalem is people. But who is there? Well, the second thing that we're told is there are rejoicing angels. You see that at the end of verse 22. Angels in festal gathering. It's saying there, there are millions upon millions of rejoicing angels. So many that you can't count them. Um, they're in festal gathering. That's a bit of a boring phrase for an exciting thing, festival gathering. It sounds really like festival gathering. Really, it means that the angels are gathered for a festival, for a feast. Think wedding reception. Think welcome home party. Think fiesta, but maybe without the maracas and the big hats and all that sort of thing. But it's supposed to be a joyful atmosphere. It's a gathering full of joy, full of celebration. Think of the best time singing that you've ever had in worship. Think of the best singing you've ever ever known. I think the one that always stands out to me is the first time I ever went to Word Alive in Skegness. And we sang the hymn that we, we sang before, Crowning with Many Crowns. And I was from a little church in a village, you know, just south of, uh, of Leeds. And, you know, mostly, about 50 people at most, I've heard singing. 
and went to this conference. There were 3,000 of us in a tent. And we sang, crowning with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne. How the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. And I don't think I really understood those words until I'd sung heard 3,000 people nearly deafen me by singing it. But it's that sort of a, an idea. It's a celebration. It's a joy with innumerable angels singing, enjoying themselves, celebrating. And he's saying, this is what you have come to. This really is what is happening as we speak in the heavenly Jerusalem. And it only gets more amazing. It's an assembly of the firstborn. That's the third thing we're told, beginning of uh, 23. Um, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Here again we get something really exciting written in a really plain way. Brothers and sisters... This is us. We're there. That's what it's talking about here. We are there now in that heavenly Jerusalem. We are there, literally, the church of the firstborn. That's what it means, church. The church globally across the world, we're there now with the angels. Now that sounds a little strange, doesn't it? But it's taught elsewhere that we're seated now with Christ in the heavenly realms. This is, after all, what we have come to. Not what we will come to. This is us. We're in that festival with the angels. We're described as the firstborn. That's a position of authority in the Bible. Israel in the Old Testament were described in that way. But now all who are Abraham's children, uh, by faith, are the firstborn. In Christ we are sons of God. Firstborns before him. So what it's saying is that we are the church of the firstborn. When the Bible talks about being involved in heaven, it's talking about us, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So we are there in Zion right now. Physically, we're in this assembly, we're in this church, but spiritually, we're in that one as well. (coughs) Zion is where all believers are. Isn't that we are actually there with them? But it's not just the angels. It's not even just us that are there gathered in Zion. God is there as well. Have a look at the second part of verse 23. And to God, the judge of all. God is there. We're actually gathered with him. If you think about that big thing in the Bible about God dwelling with his people, well, here we see it in Zion. But why God the judge of all? Sounds a little bit strange at a celebration, doesn't it? But the celebration here is with the judge. The one who has declared his people righteous. If you think about it this way, there's no need to fear the judge when the judge himself is at the celebration, is there? If the judge is celebrating with you, then you're in no danger. Even God as judge is dwelling with his people. The closest way I can think about it was imagine going to... uh, uh, you might have to use your imagination a lot here, but imagine going to a party and you're a criminal. Okay? And you turn up at the party and there's a policeman there. Okay? But the policeman is off duty. So he sees you, the criminal, he doesn't arrest you. And you're thinking, oh, well, what if I see him outside when he's on duty? Will he arrest me? Am I really safe? Well, here, if you like, it's like the policeman's on duty. He's coming in his uniform and he still doesn't arrest you. If he can join in, with the celebration, dressed in this policeman's uniform and you're a criminal, then you really are safe as houses, aren't you? Well, here, the judge of all is celebrating with his people. 
We are in no danger. Even as judge, he can dwell with his people because of what Christ did on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins. So the judge is there, celebrating with us. But it is a reminder of his power and authority. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote, he's no tame lion, our God. He's the judge of all mankind. And then fifthly, the next group of people that were told are there, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There at the end of verse 23. Now this refers to those who have gone on before us. The ones who God has declared righteous, but have died. And this is our certain hope here, that if we die before Jesus returns, we'll already be numbered with them. And more than that, we'll be declared perfect. So it's those people who have gone on now to the end, people who have died, the spirits of those made perfect. So it's saying if people died, it's not just the people who are alive that are in this gathering, it's all the saints that have gone on before us. All of them are there, now made perfect, declared righteous on earth by faith, then made perfect in heaven by God in Zion. But it's not even just that. Simply, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. It's a reminder that not Moses and the old covenant, but Jesus and the new covenant. Now if you want to know why that's such good news, I could talk about this for hours, but really just go back and look at the rest of Hebrews. That's what he's been talking about with the, the new covenant and Jesus as the mediator of it. Reread chapters 8 and 9 because he's already told us how wonderful that is. And then finally, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel, we're told in Genesis, cried out for vengeance. He was killed by his brother and his blood cried out from the ground. But the blood of Jesus speaks a word of grace. Abel, we're told, is still speaking in chapter 11. But the blood of Jesus speaks more loudly, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood speaks of forgiveness and atonement. The congregation before Moses was sprinkled with the blood of the Old Covenant, the blood of rams and goats that could not take away sin. But here the blood of Jesus is sprinkled. And how much better to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus that forgives all our sin. So this is what we have come to. This is where union with Christ has brought us. This is not where we are going. This is what Jesus has brought us already. And we await the day when the heavenly Jerusalem comes down as the new Jerusalem. But until then, how do we experience this? Well, we grasp it by faith. And we glimpse it in the church. We grasp it by faith. And we glimpse it in the church. We grasp it by faith because it's not tangible. It's not like Mount Sinai that you could touch. But by faith doesn't mean that it's not real. It is real, but not everything that's real can be touched, can it? Some things we must see with the eyes of our heart, not with the eyes of our head. And Zion is one of them. The Bible tells us that this is the reality now. And yet we can see it in some sense. We see it in the church. More than a glimpse, really. It's, I tried to struggle get a phrase really to explain it. It's like an unconsummated experience. It's something that we have, but it leaves us longing for more. So as we gather together on earth, 
In a special way, we gather together in heaven with the angels and with the rest of the church globally and the saints across time. What are we doing at church? Well, we're God's people gathering together to meet God in his words. That's what we're doing. But isn't that exactly what's going on in our passage? Even on Mount Sinai, we get a model of this churching, if you like. God's people gathered together to hear God speak. That's what's happening at Sinai. But instead of hearing his word, they begged not to speak. Instead of obeying his word, their immediate response was idolatry and lies. But Mount Zion is better, isn't it? As we join in that gathering. God's people gather to hear God speak. If you think about it in a way, hasn't that been what the whole letter has been about? Think about how it started in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The ultimate spiritual experience in this life is to hear God speak by his Spirit, through his word, about his Son. That is our spiritual bread and butter now in this world. That is what joins us into Zion. This is our spiritual feast, really, more than our bread and butter, that God would speak to us. But the question posed to us in this passage is, what are you going to do with God's word to us? Close your ears and and beg for God not to speak to you like the Israelites? Or today, will you hear his voice and not harden your hearts? That's been repeated over and over again, hasn't it, in Hebrews? Will you obey his voice, or will you refuse him? And that's where our last section comes in, more briefly. The terror of turning away. Have a look at 25 to 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake, not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yes, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He says here, don't refuse the one who is speaking to you. What has he been telling us all the way through the letter? What has he been speaking to us? Don't turn back. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't go back to your old way of life. It's as if he's saying, if you're scared of turning your back on Moses, be more scared of turning your back on Jesus. The day is coming, says God, when I will shake the earth. He shook it the first time at Sinai, when the mountain trembled when he gave the law. This time, however, it will be a shaking that the earth will not withstand. A shaking so violent that only what is unshakable will remain. The picture is of a terrifying earthquake that levels a city with only one building left standing. Or a panning for precious metals. Uh, where the pan is shaken until all the dirt and filth is gone and only the gold remains. What is it that remains? 
what we see in our passage, don't we? God's kingdom remains. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that will stand firm. So in light of that, what are we to do? The surprising answer, I suppose, in many ways, be thankful. That's what he says. Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Be grateful for the unshakable kingdom bought by the blood of Christ. And in that way, we offer acceptable worship to God. It's a bit hard uh, to catch in the ESV. The NIV puts it a little clearer. I'll read it to you. Same verse, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So to be worshipful is to be overflowing with thankfulness to God. That might express itself in the way that you sing, but it will also express itself in the way that you live. A life lived with acceptable reverence for God, in awe of God, for all that he has done to bring us to this unshakable kingdom. Not paralysing fear, but reverence, an entirely different word here. Why are we to be reverent? Because God is a consuming fire. You might think that belongs to the old covenant, but he's saying here he still is a consuming fire. If it were not for Christ our mediator, our go-between, we could have no hope of standing before the judge of all. We would be consumed as the Israelites feared that they would be. We would be with them at the foot of Sinai, fearful to go any further. But we've not come to Sinai. We've come to Zion, the city of the living God. We can join with those angels in worshipping him. But we must understand that if we want to be worshippers of God, it's not about bringing stuff to God. It's about being thankful for what he has brought to us. It's not about doing stuff for him, but being thankful for what he has done for us. And that's massively different from the system that they were being drawn back into. It's gift versus wages. It's faith versus religion. It's reverence versus fear. It's Jesus versus anything and everything else. It's as if God is saying, if you want to be scared, be scared of turning away from Jesus. Don't be scared by the terrors of the law. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Don't even be scared by your sinfulness. His sprinkled blood covers over even the worst of our sin. His death pays the price of our rebellion. Be scared instead of refusing him who speaks. He bids us come and worship in grateful thankfulness to him. He bids us continue the race and make it to the end. He bids us not abandon Christ, but cling to him for mercy and pardon. Dare you refuse him who speaks? Dare you harden your hearts? Dare you trample on the covenant that is made with you by the blood of his only son? If you want to fear something, fear that. God is a consuming fire. No sin will prevent you from entering heaven, from inhabiting Zion. No transgression is there that cannot be forgiven other than the sin of rejecting Christ and spurning the forgiveness that he offers. So don't give up on Christ. 
keep going. It's not humility to refuse to believe that he cannot or he will not forgive you. In one sense, if you think about it, it's the height of arrogance to believe that my sin is more powerful than his blood. Fear is a strange thing, isn't it? But don't let that fear drive you to sign up with its commands and condemnation. Let it drive you to Christ. Don't let fear of the law drive you to legalism and gloom. Let it drive you to the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Instead of fearing, let's get over ourselves and grasp hold of that unshakable kingdom that he has for us. Let's worship the living God of Zion with reverence and awe. In life, live not in paralyzing fear, but in overflowing thankfulness. Fear is a strange thing, especially in the light of all that God has done for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we are inhabitants of Zion. Father, thank you that we have not come to Mount Sinai. Father, help us to live as those who are inhabitants of Zion. Father, those who know that we're in that great gathering, not by our works, but by our faith in Christ. So help us to cling to him this week. Uh, Father, help us to cling to him afresh, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.